Hi, good afternoon everybody. I think we'll make a start. There obviously a few people are still filling themselves up on lunch. Uh, I'd like to congratulate you on making it halfway. I think we may have lost one or two people by now, but some of you are still here for more activities. I'm going to talk to you about diagnostic reasoning. I think it's interesting, I have one mission in this talk. You know like some people put up, I'm going to retrieve lots of things. I'm going to teach you about this and this and this. Uh, my mission, where's Julie Ashworth? Julie said to me this morning, I'm not really into diagnostics. <laughs> and I'm not really into the teaching of it even more. So my mission, apart from mission two, I'll tell you mission two is, is to try and change her mind about diagnostics and try and change your mind. The second one is at some point I may roam around the room and I have to try and get Olive in the shot at some point. <laughs> okay. About five years ago I came on this course and somebody was delivering this talk on diagnostics about this time in the afternoon. And I was sat at the back like Mike Crilly is there and started fiddling around with my bag. And after about five minutes I started to switch off and do something else because all the information was going over my head. So what I decided then was I thought, I'm going to start thinking about this. And what I'm going to talk to you about today is, if you join me on this hour, is I'm just going to talk to you about things I find useful in my practice. I'm not going to talk to you about fancy calculations and how difficult, but I'll show you the simple bits I use. And I want you to keep that in mind. Often what happens here, people teach you research methodology and you get lost. So to illustrate that point, this is my daughter Katie. And as you can see there, at the back they were discussing about the calculation. She's only five years old, and in our house we like to keep things simple. <laughs> and she's calculating a mean difference there. And for the sharp people this morning who was in Amanda's lecture, you'll realise here she's got the confidence intervals in. <laughs> However, in our house we really like to do it well. So here at the bottom is my eight-year-old giving her a bit of advice on how to get it right. But it's important we have to, and I've been doing that in my group, is keeping things simple so we can understand them. What it did, though, is I, I, I said to people sometimes, in, some people want to teach here. Sometimes I put things on my slide in yellow that allow me to remind, to, just a reminder to me to do something. I'm going to give you an illustration of diagnostic reasoning actually in practice. About two months ago, uh, my daughter was ill in the night and I've been in training now for eight years I've been qualified eight years and you get to that point where you suddenly think oh my god I'm not quite sure if she's really unwell here I'm really quite worried about my daughter she had diarrhea, tummy pain, fever was 41 and I'm going oh my gosh and my wife's going tell me what to do now I'm sure those of you with children will recognize that sort of position so actually what I did do is ring my general practitioners in the morning. And boy was the receptionist difficult. <laughs> I had to mention the word, I'm a doctor by the way. And she went, oh right, okay. What we'll do is we'll get you a phone call. Now, I'm at 19 Bowman Street and actually the person who then spoke to me on the end of the line is Paul there at the back. who was practicing that day. He might have even forgot this by now. So he gives me the advice, he talks to me through, and I'm feeling a bit more relaxed. And then he says to me, what about the jump test? 
And suddenly, bang, in my mind came back this scenario. I remember in my training, there was this thing about rebounding. If you've got this acute abdomen, they used to ask questions like, what's it like in the car? Or in a child, what's it like if they jump up and down? And what had happened is, a, a minute earlier, she'd just come down the stairs, and you know like children do, they just jump off the end of the steps, don't they? And I immediately relaxed. I said, oh gosh, I feel better, I can manage this. End of the phone call, that afternoon she got better, fever subsided, she felt better, and you know children instantly, the better they're running about. However, that evening, about five o'clock, I suddenly said to myself, jump test, where's the evidence for that? <laughs> you know, they just, I'm an evidence-based practitioner. Let's do some deliberate practice. So I actually looked it up on PubMed. Here's the advantage of PubMed. You can do it in your own home. It took me about a minute to find the article. In fact, in the acute assessment of children, the jump test is completely useless. <laughs> I thought, right, that's it. The next day I'm back to work. I run into the office. I say, by the way, Paul, do you know that assessment of the jump test? He says, I know. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you know? And he said, well, I looked it up on Medline myself. <laughs> it's completely useless. <laughs> That's how we think, okay? That's evidence-based practice thinking, if you like. Using information, questioning your uncertainty. Okay, so we're going to have a bit of fun in this session, okay? I will stretch the time to the point when I start to think you're all slightly going to sleep and I'm losing you. I will finish immediately then. If I think we're doing very well, I'll carry on. Okay, two things. I've been having a lot of fun with Amanda with this. I think the first thing is in diagnostic skills. We have to accept there are things we do not know out there. And the second thing is, the way we perceive information can be faulty. I'm going to deal with the second one and then I'm going to talk about strategies that can improve what we do. Okay, you've all got this picture, haven't you? Some of you should have this picture. Now, if you look at this chequered square, the squares marked A and B, are they the same shade of grey? How many think no? Hands up. Okay, most of you. How many think yes? One or two or three. Okay. This is an illustration of our perception. Now, somebody's got one of these sheets, have they? Can I borrow your sheet there, sir, if you don't mind? I want you to just do something. If you start to fold the sheet over and bring A to B and then match the shading, what you should start to see is that actually A and B are identical shades of grey. You can take this away with you. Olive disagrees. Can you just come down here with your paper, please, Olive? On the right, now this might, you take it away, and however much I look at this left-hand side, I still think A is different to B. Okay. You can take that away with you, you can... <laughs> okay, I'm going to show you a second one that's even more fun. Okay. Okay, the car picture. Are these cars the same size? Now, you all think I'm playing tricks now. I could be doing the... Do they look the same size? Okay. I think that's important because 
This is how we see information. So when I look at my, when I make mistakes in diagnosis, I can't understand sometimes how I've made them mistakes. But information is presented to us the same information. So when I measure these cars, now watch where the wheelbase, what happens to the wheelbase? You see that? I'm going to move to the side. Has the wheelbase got shorter or longer? And what about there? It's the same. No matter how much I look at this, I cannot explain why they're the same. However, the information surrounding the cars is in perspective and different. And it's making you look at things differently. So the context we see a person affects how we see them in terms of diagnosis. If I see them in general practice, they're less likely to have a heart attack than if I see them in, in the emergency department. The context of the information is actually going to change what we do. So what we did about three years ago is actually, on a, on a train about three years ago, I thought there has to be more to diagnosis than what is just the two-by-two two box. And I was on a train with Paul and we started to flash out what the strategies are. And I want you to think of the strategies just like I did then as measuring effects, trying to improve the way we do things. And I'm going to talk to you about a piece of work that we've been ongoing for about three years, about what I think evidence-based diagnostics is. I may lose you at some points, and if I'm losing you, you can do what Amanda did and just put your hand up and shout at me. Okay, so let's start. I want you to just imagine, this is me as a GP. Monday morning, in the clinic, feeling a bit tired, in need of my first cup of coffee of the day, and I have a message on my screen. There is a child coming in who is unwell with a fever. I have booked her into your emergency slot. Now, I want you to just write down the one thing or two things that come to mind in terms of what the diagnosis is. I'm going to give you 10 seconds just to write this down. If you don't know anything, that's fine. Okay. As you pop out for your next patient, hoping to see a cup of coffee out there, you ask the receptionist if there was anything else about the child. Nice receptionist says to you, oh yes, her mum said she had a rash, or has a rash. Okay, write down the one thing that comes to your mind. You don't have to be a clinician here, because remember, we're all parents. We all do this diagnostic every day. Okay, number three. Child comes in to see you, is three-year-old, is chorizal, for those that's a runny nose, has had a temperature for two days of 39 degrees C, the mum tells you that, you check the temperature. The rash began this morning and is on the body and is on the face. Write down what comes to mind now. Less of you writing down. Only a few people activity-wise. Okay, there's the rash. You say, I want to look at the rash. That's the rash. It's a bit slightly out of focus. Write down what... what Some people are looking at that going, oh my gosh, the GPs at the back of the room are going, there we go. Okay? Before you discuss with the mother what you consider the diagnosis to be, you ask her what she thinks it might be. 
And the mother says to you, well, I'm particularly concerned because at nursery at the moment, there's a lot of children with chicken pox. Write down what you think the diagnosis is now. Okay, so let's start here. What did people put down here as a possible diagnosis? Only one piece of information. Urinary tract infection. Infection. Flu. Tonsillitis. Meningitis. Hmm? Any viral illness. Okay, so simple pieces of information, single pieces of information, however much you think nothing's going on, is setting off a trigger already in your mind. Immediately, we're starting to think diagnostic strategies. Okay, you've got this second piece of information. Any, what do people think now? Measles. Measles. Meningitis. Okay, wherever I've been, that's about the two, two particular diagnoses that everybody jumps forward with, particularly the meningitis. Particularly, apart from emergency departments where now they're completely lost. But everybody goes in that direction. Okay, you got this additional information. What did people think then? Chicken pox. Why did you think chicken pox? Anybody else think chicken pox at this time? One, two, three, four, five. Okay. That's a classical textbook di definition of how you diagnose chicken pox. Okay? That's exactly how it appears in the textbook. That's what we teach people. Only four or five of you actually could recognise that. What about this? Okay, a lot of you are now more certain. Okay? And what about when the mother said she had chicken pox? Oh, she was worried about the nursery. Does anybody, what do people think it potentially is now? Okay, I'm going to illustrate. So what we've done there is we've used what are called the initiation strategies, initiation of the diagnosis. You've used four possible strategies to initiate the diagnosis. The spot diagnosis was the picture. Some people can immediately key into the spot diagnosis. The self-labeling, patients or other professionals will ask you or tell you there is a particular thing they are concerned about. Can you look at this patient? I'm concerned they have cellulitis. I'm concerned about having a chest infection. In this case, they, the mother was concerned about other children with chicken pox. Presenting complaint does set off an actual strategy, but what you could see at the presenting complaint stage is you've got a wide variety of possibilities. And then actually we've got this pattern recognition trigger. It relies on a particular memory. Only a few people had some memory of that recognises the actual pattern of chicken pox. Okay, so we've actually done this. We've gone forward as an actual piece of work actually with our GPs in Oxford to say, do these exist? And actually this is just a piece of diagram where they collected 50 new cases and said, what initiates the strategy? Each circle... <laughs> represents one of the GPs. And as you can see, is they add up to more than 100%. So you use more than one strategy at any one time to trigger the possibility. So you can see here, now this is important, about 20% of diagnoses in primary care rely on a spot diagnosis. 
Now, Mike, you're a, an undergraduate or a teacher in general practice. How much spot diagnosis do you think we actually teach in the medical education? A lot? No. I never had any teaching of spot diagnosis. But one in five of my presentations rely on some instantaneous recognition of the problem. I like this self-labelling, in fact, actually, and I'll come back to this, but in the, when I did this with the emergency department registrar, they couldn't actually believe that you would ask the patient in some way they would be correct. <laughs> <laughs> they said the only time they took notice of self-labelling was when you actually got right to the end of the consultation and you had no idea what was going on. <laughs> then it was worth actually asking the patient. You can see here, presenting complaint always triggers off some hypothesis, almost quite a lot of time, and the pattern recognition is actually a smaller component, but it still exists. Okay, so I want you to do it this. One more go at this. This is actually, this is last week in practice, last Monday. This is Miriam, an 80-year-old. So I want you to think of the four possible strategies, and then soon as you come up with a diagnosis in your mind, I want you to put your hand up. So Miriam comes in to see me, she sort of walks in, you know, and you, you go out to get the patient and she walks in a little bit slowly, not too bad, doesn't look, but, you know, hunched over a little bit, comes and sits down okay, and I say, you sit there as a GP and you try and not say too much, and you sit there and I go, okay, Miriam, what, what can I do for you? And she said, I've had a problem with diarrhoea and a bit of flu, and I've not been feeling too well. I'm listening, I'm, I'm trying to encourage you not to interject. And uh, I've got back pain. Mm, I'm going, hmm. Okay, tell me about the back pain. She said, it's been pretty painful, actually. Uh, it's down in the lower bit here. Nobody's got their hand up yet. You're all cagey. So I've got this. Oh, Paul's got his hand up. Good. I've got the back pain here. And it comes around the side. I'm thinking diarrhea, gastroenteritis, old lady, back pain, and it comes around the side. I said, is there anything funny about this? She says, yes, and I've got a rash as well. Got another person putting their hand up. Okay. I said, what about this rash? She said, well, it's tingling. Okay. The more hands are going up. And so I said to her, so what do you think? I said, can I have a look at this rash, if you don't mind? Okay, there's the rash. And then I asked her, what do you think it is? He said, my husband had something similar to this. I think it was called shingles. Yeah. Okay, so some of you then, and that's the example there, that's how I think. Did you see what was happening when we were going in the wrong direction in the first place with the diarrhea and the gastroenteritis? I was thinking, this patient has gastroenteritis. I shifted focus because she said back pain. Back pain can come with abdominal, but you start to get a bit more worried. But then she starts to say, rash, we're getting a pattern appearing. Then we had the tingling, and some people went bang. Some people can look at that and go, that is shingles. Can look at a patient and say, that is shingles. Some people have never seen it before. And then when she's clarified it by saying, my husband has it, we can build the information up of how I think initially, and that's the end of my diagnosis. In fact, because I shut my mouth for two minutes and thought about where my strategies were, that's the end. I can then move into the consultation about what we're going to do for this patient.
So there's the initiation. Okay, I'm going to get you to think now a bit. You've got some, I'm going to give you an activity for a few minutes just to illustrate some of these points. So at the moment you've all got this little quiz, so I'm going to give you about two minutes. I'd like you to just have a go at this quiz. Now for the highest scoring person in the quiz, I have two copies of uh, the user's guide to the medical literature to give away. So there's an incentive. These are not by Blackwells, by the way. They can't buy them at the bookshop. Okay, good, good. Now I need to remind myself of the questions. Question one was? Who is this? John 4. Give yourself a mark if you put John 4. Or Inspector Morse. Okay, I'll give you a mark for Inspector Morse. <laughs> We've got who is John 4. You'll have to ask your group that. What neurological condition does John Force have suffer with? Parkinson's? Foot drop. Give yourself a mark if you've got foot drop. How many people got foot drop? Four people. How many people watch Inspector Morse? Now you could have a mark for polio, lots of you. Now John Four, every episode, walks like this. The cameras cut him off, but he walks like this. He had polio as a child and he got foot drop. And if you watch another edition, you'll see it walks like this. The camera often cuts him off there. But if you don't know that to spot that, you will not be able to get that. Okay, the next question. Question three, what's this? Padgets. Man, we're not, uh, we're going to get full marks here. Question four, what bridge is this? Okay, and the question five is, which is the nearest pub? My favourite pub, apart from the White Horse next to Blackwell's, the Turf Tavern. If you haven't been down that street, you can't recognise it. Do you see that? If you have been down that street, you can instantly recognise that. If you haven't been to the Turf Tavern, well, you should consider going there before you leave. <laughs> it's a very nice place to go for a drink, if you can find it. But that's a good illustration of what I call a spot diagnosis. There's no eyes or all. You can't make it up. I can't give you additional information. You either do know it or you don't. So there are lots of areas in your, in your, when you go back to your healthcare, whether it's midwifery or nursery or it's in general practice, where you can say, actually, what are the spot di diagnoses our students need to know? Remember, they're 20%. And experience will gain them. Question six, what's this? Okay. Question seven is the building, what's this? Divinity School. The Divinity School. It's part of the Bodleian Library. And it's been in Harry Potter. 
Okay, I had to have some discriminatory questions in case you're all really smart and you've done this before. And the last one? It's conjunctivitis. Okay, anybody score 10? 9. 8. Gosh, I've got to make an easier test. 7. 7. 7, no, 6. 6 for Mike and, and another chap at the back there. Congratulations. Now, if you give that one to Mike as well. Now, it's an important point. I wanted to do that just to reinforce about the issue of spot diagnosis. It's about experience. You can all see that. You have to see these things. You have to see these things in practice to know what you're doing. Okay. Self-labeling by patients in GP consultations. When we did our 50 cases each, this is what patients often came in with. Tonsillitis. I've had it before, doctor, and I've got tonsillitis again. I have a chest infection, doctor. I'm sure we'll all recognize that. I thought, oh, God. I have a groin strain. You know, I have muscular... People know when they've got groin, ankle sprains. I've sprained my ankle. I have asthma. Even new people who've never had it before. And I, I have a UTI, just like the last time. This is women. So this is an interesting one. If you have a patient who labels themselves as having a urinary tract infection, a woman who's had a recurrent urinary tract infection, how often are they likely to be correct? So that's it. this is going to be now an interesting question that, that I ask, because this is what happens. Okay, we formulated a question like we know, know how to do it. Slightly different here, we have the indicator or the intervention or the test. And this was the question I was interested in. In a woman with recurrent UTI, can she treat herself, and how well does that compare to a microbiological culture, and is she correct in the diagnosis and treatment? So basically, can a woman who's had a UTI before come into my surgery, tell me she's got a urinary tract infection again, and I feel certain or secure that she's pretty accurate in what she's doing? Okay, so we looked on PubMed, now you're like all familiar with, and there's a particular trial in 2001 in the Anals Internal Medicine that actually matches our question. There's a P, recurrent urinary tract infections in young women, patient-initiated treatment of, un of uncomplicated. Okay, and here's the measurements. Okay, the accuracy of self-diagnosis determined by evidence of a definite culture positive or probable sterile pyuria and no alternative diagnosis. Okay, and here's the outcome. 88 of 172 women self-diagnosed a total of 172 UTIs. Laboratory evaluation showed a uropathogen in 144 cases, 84%. So if a woman comes in to see me tomorrow who's had a urinary tract infection and says, I have another one, what do you think I do? Do you think I send off a culture? Do you think I just relax and go, here you go, here's your prescription, I believe you, I make sure she's telling me the right story of the symptoms. But in effect, she's about 85% correct. However, the thing is, with self-labeling, there are lots of areas where we don't know where people are very good at self-labeling. Gout, all these other areas. But in that area, I feel I have some evidence to back me up. I've changed the way I practice, in effect. Okay, I'm going to move on now to what we call refinement of the diagnosis. I've showed you areas where you can simply jump in and go, there's the diagnosis. Chicken pox, shingles, 
urinary tract infection, there are quite a lot of them. But some areas, what we end up with is uncertainty. We have a certain idea that there are two or three possibilities now, and what we like to do is to refine that to a single most likely cause. So the second area we've found is what we call refinement of that diagnosis. Is you've set off your hypothesis, like at the beginning when we said this could be chickenpox, measles, it could be upper respiratory tract infection, but you need a number of rules or ideas to be able to help you. And these four, five rules we came up are particularly one is a, or strategies. Are one is a restricted rule, two is a stepwise refinement, the third is probabilistic reasoning, and our fourth is pattern recognition fit, and the fifth is a clinical prediction rule. I'm going to explain some of these, how we use them and how we might use them. Okay, restricted rule out. This is very interesting. This is new to me in the last two years. It's a learned diagnostic strategy for each presentation. And there's a particular guy down the bottom here called John Murta from Australia who wrote a whole book about this. It's about common problems and a safe diagnostic strategy. And what you do is you try and find out what are the common causes of the disease and also what you're really interested in is what's going to kill you or cause you real harm. So, for instance, in a headache, it's very difficult in a headache to jump in and say there's a single cause. But what you would do is to check for particular common causes, migraine, tension-type headaches. But you also want to rule out the, the other causes, high blood pressure, temporal arthritis, and subarachnoid hemorrhage. And in fact, Amanda talked to me the other day about, uh, was it your dad or his dad's friend and his temporal arthritis, and his headache and his pulsatile vein, and a restricted rule would have allowed you to pick that up. Because although you'd have gone into the common causes, and remember at the beginning, I said, in, you make, we make mistakes. We look at things and we go in and we jump in and we say, this is a migraine. But rules, and there are a number of these that can be applied, when you've got seriouses, you have to stop and think of the one or two causes. Prediction rules. Okay, this is an interesting one, prediction rules. Which ones do you use in practice? How many people here use a prediction rule? Two people at the back. I'm going to exclude them because I know that. Oh, Mike uses one. Mike, you're in. Three. Okay. Okay, clinical prediction rules are like at the beginning when I did with the car, were an attempt to put measurement in some way to help us in what we do. There are numbers that the GPs used when we did this. Otter ankle rule streptococcal sore throat rule, ABCD score for stroke risk, HAD score for depression, Wells rule for DVT, and chest infection rules. Now, this is slightly skewed population because all these are academic GPs. So when you get a bunch of academic GPs together in a university department, you can get to about six prediction rules are helpful. So it's not surprising when you're in a non-academic setting that the number is often zero. But some of you may have heard of some of these, like in your mind, you might have heard of things like the Otter Ankle Rule. So, the Otter Ankle Rule says to you, for instance, can you predict which patients have an ankle fracture? Okay, you can use clinical queries here again. In fact, I went into the systematic review here for ankle and rules. And number four there, BMJ systematic review, the accuracy of Otter Ankle Rule to exclude fractures of the ankle and midfoot, systematic review.
There's a 20 second search for you. Okay? That's how useful clinical queries can be. You can look for systematic reviews in diagnosis. Okay, there's the author ankle rules. I put this up in an emergency department where they all said they'd heard of the author ankle rules. I did what we did now and I did that. Okay? I removed it from the screen. And I asked people to say, tell me, what is the author ankle rule? This is what worried me now. Not one single person in the room, this is about 25 people, could actually tell me the rule or the same variant of the rule. So we have these things that are incredibly helpful and I'll show you how helpful they are, but we have no strategy and have not worked out any way how to get them into practice. And all we ever get is, how do we change practice at the back here? Do you see the problem? We've got simple things that will help us really well and they're being ignored. We don't need to have fancy change. However, we need to develop this from the bottom up. You need to go back to your own practices. And if you did one thing, you could say, well, which rule would help us in our practice? Well, let's look at how helpful the elsewhere ankle rule is. The instrument has a sensitivity of almost 100% and a modest specificity. And its use should reduce the number of unnecessary radiographs by 40%, 30 to 40%. So if you apply that rule, you actually save us a lot of money and a lot of hassle for patients. However, a GP is pretty smart in our place called Peter Rose. What he does is he actually keeps the rope these on in his desk in a little card. And he pulls out the wells when he needs it. And he pulls out the picture of this when you need it. Because if you get it wrong, you don't get the benefits you'd expect. So you could go back and you can look at this in any setting and determine which prediction rules might help you. But here's the problem. Now if this goes out live, I might get in trouble with the... Uh, if it went out on the net. But Essential Evidence Plus is out there for sale. Some people of you might have bought this info poems book. And I was looking at this, there's a particular chap in our department called Matthew Thompson, who's reviewing this at the moment for us. And I don't know if you can see there, just at the top, just there, how many, this is the clinical prediction rules. There are 291 of these prediction rules in the Essential Evidence Plus. You think that's a lot? Maybe not a lot. I've got a few nods for a lot. What do people think? So, giving you 300 probably overwhelms you in some way. We haven't worked out out of them which would be useful. People haven't actually sat in their setting and said, well, which ones do we think would help us in our practice? And just supplying 300 prediction rules is a waste of time. Any instrument that just throws them in your face is a waste of time because it's too many and you haven't looked at the evidence and looked at your patient population and how it might help you and how it might affect how you practice. So just giving you a top-down approach is a waste of time with prediction rules. You need to do it from the bottom up. Okay. I particularly like this one. This was the bit where we talked about pattern recognition fit. I think this was in the BMJ, actually. I pinched it out of the BMJ. Um, a 49-year-old with severe flare-up of ulcerative colitis gets admitted to hospital, and she receives intravenous hydrocortisone, aminosalicylates, and cyclosporine treatment, because she's pretty unwell. And all that was started. And after seven days, she was then given oral pregnisolone at about 60 milligrams per day. 
And every day after that, she started to write this note to the junior doctor. <laughs> every day he'd turn up, he'd get this, pitch, this card. Day 7, day 8, day 9, day 10. What's the diagnosis? Mania. And what's causing the mania? Steroids. Do I need to have probabilistic reasoning or likelihood ratios now? That's a packet recognition fit. She's gone manic. She's gone psychotic, if you like, on a background of too many steroids. There's a pattern recognition fit. Okay, so we're building up the number of different strategies that you can employ and think about and teach about. You don't need to know a two-by-two two table. You don't need a calculation. You just need to know that these sort of patterns exist and they're helpful. You won't see it a lot. Okay. This is the panacea, I guess, of all the evidence-based practice. And this is about five years ago. This was the only bit of what people used to teach. Okay. They used to teach what's called probabilistic reasoning in a two-by-two two box. And, it's in your, and it used to be, if people could grind their way through this two-by-two two box and understand this, then boy, they, the one, one of you in the room would stand up at the end and think, I am an EBM god. But most of us would go, oh my god, what's this going to help us in practice? However, we're going to have a bit of fun for about 10, 15 minutes. That's if you want to keep going. Nobody's fell asleep yet, that's good. We're going to have 10 or 15 minutes where we're going to really, I'm going to really test you. And I'm going to ask you to just think. And if you can get these one or two principles on board, actually you'll be far superior than most people out there in the health professional. But before I do that, I'm just going to give you a 20, 30 second break so you can get yourself ready to concentrate again. So you can have 30 seconds just to talk with your partner and then I'm going to start again. better now. I need you down in a minute. Okay, good. There's your 30 seconds gone. We've got a lot to achieve. Okay. You've all seen this wonderful graph, and this is the graph, and you can, you can, it's in your book, so I'm not going to go. I'm just going to talk to you about a couple of bits. I've got this extra R in there called reproducible. This is not in the workbook. I want it in the next edition of the workbook, Paul, because it's a lot of fun, and here's something that you can all try out when you get back to your workplace. Okay. Um, when we normally do this, I have a lot of fun. We're normally in a big arena with lots of tables, and I get you to all do this on each other. And you can try this out when you get back. I get three or four students, and I get you to measure one head. However, the problem is you're a bit confined and I can't get you all to do this. However, uh, I'd like Mike, can you just come down, Mike, from it? Uh, can you just illustrate the principle here for me, Mike? So what we do normally is, is in a big setting in an open plan, I get three or four of you and you say, can you measure one head and just not tell them the results? So I'm going to ask Mike just to measure my head to come. Inside life, is it? Yeah, yeah. No, just the head. <laughs> do you want me to take a few inches off like usual? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> Okay. Oh my. <laughs> okay, 59.5 centimetres. Thanks, Mike. Give Mike a round of applause. 
Okay. Some of you may have noticed at coffee time, I came around asking people to give me their measurement of my head. Okay? Uh, and I did this, what I called, I, I, Amanda gave me this idea this morning. It was fantastic. One of the potters. I want shares of potters. But I thought, okay, at coffee time, I'm going to do my own study. <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my tape measure, and I, that's why I started with Mike, and I'm going to take the tape measure and ask people to measure my head circumference. And I'm going to stop doing that when somebody gets the same, hand, same answer. Okay? So if, if you did 59.5 then, did you? If the next person had got 59.5, I would have stopped. And how many people do you think it would take before I got the same measurement? Exactly the same measurement. Well, we, uh, people were measuring it to 0 and 0.5, that's all they were doing it. 12, 20. 5, 3. Okay, let's look at the, uh, let's look how we did. Okay, Mike, you're out again. Mike got 59 centimetres. Then I went to Edna. I'm not sure if I spelt that right, but Edna did something odd. She went into inches. <laughs> 23 and a half inches. So I didn't couldn't do the conversion factor there, but I was already in trouble. Okay, Paul there went to 60.5 centimetres. So we went up, okay. And Julie then went to 63 centimetres. Mike had said at the beginning, didn't he? Are we doing this? He said to me, are we doing this because your head's getting bigger? <laughs> There's the proof, Mike. However, Catherine said something very important to me. She said, does it matter where I measure it? I'm, I'm going to let you think about that yourself. But actually, my head size went down at that point to 61 centimetres. Okay. Bang, bang. He said to me, what is happening with your head? <laughs> 59.5. Does anybody know what's happening with my head? Because according to me, it gets bigger and smaller after a cup of coffee. Okay. Amanda, 61.5. Now, Amanda had seen these measurements because I said, this is what I'm doing. So she turned it over to the inches and said, well, I'll just do it inches and then convert it back. Still no help. <laughs> Claire, Claire at the back there, 60 centimetres. So I'm up to number eight person. And I'm thinking, gee, I'm not going to get back to my group now. And luckily, Dan there came in at 59.5, which was the same as Bang Bang. See that? <laughs> I don't want to confuse my group anymore. <laughs> important principle. Do you see that about measurements? Very important. There are some nice statements there. People were asking, do you want it in centimetres or inches? Does it matter where I measure it? What is actually happening with my head? <laughs> you know, they used to use a tape measure in children when they had meningitis, and it had gone up by seven millimetres, then they'd order an urgent CT scan. I'm not sure what they'd order on me. <laughs> However, tape measure, I got taught to use this in obstetric practice. It varies by up to five centimetres. In fact, a friend of mine this happened to, he actually ended up with this situation and said, you need a scan because I'm concerned that your baby is undersized by five centimetres. However, the scan was not available for one week. Do you think she felt bad and anxious in that period? 
You know, I think it's a, it's a slight scandal that we do these things and then don't realise the consequences of what we've got to offer next. So if we teach people to measure and to do it this way, yes, we try and standardise it, but we should use these measurements to then say, what's our next action? How do we remember at the beginning about the cars, the problems we face? And so you often see this measure, which is not is a, is a measure in these test studies, about measure of agreement. How well do we agree? And at the bottom you get this kappa value, a bit like the very good agreement. We can look at an x-ray all the time and agree on what it's saying. At the top, 0.2, we get the poor agreement. And generally, you look in this, but that's what you've just done. I think you'd agree that the nine people would probably be somewhere quite high up here in terms of agreement. So would we say that using a tape measure is a useful way of measuring the head circumference? Okay, so we wouldn't even move forward. I think that's an important... It depends on how, how is the significance of the difference. Okay, good point, exactly. So in children, it makes a difference. I think we showed my head could vary by about five centimetres. It's about the same as what happens with a fundal height. And it's significant because it changes what you do next. You see that? And even if the same person comes back to do the same measurement, two hours later, something different happens. So it's even standardising the person can have an effect on the agreement level. Okay. Right, I'm going to do the last thing now. Okay, interpreting sensitivity and specificity, panacea, and then remember it's only one small strategy. And in fact, it's only about 5% of what we do in primary care. In hospital medicine, it's more. But there are this particular terms, sensitivity and specificity, that probably, has, has everybody heard of them terms? Anybody not heard of them terms? Amanda's not heard of them, right? Okay, good. Amanda, see me after class. Okay, good. Let's do this. We're going to do this now. I'm going to speed up a bit because we're running out of time. I think we're running out of time. I've got about five minutes. Okay, I want you to spend, you do this together with your partner, eyes aside, and I want you to just think in small groups, what is the chance this patient, of having, this patient has the disease? A disease with a prevalence of 3% must be diagnosed. There is a test for this disease. It has a sensitivity of 50% and a specificity of 90%. Given a positive test, what are the chances of the disease? Okay? I'll repeat that while you think it through. Somebody rings you up, like my dad, on the end of the phone and said he's had a PSA test done and it's come back positive. And his chances of having cancer are about 3%. And you look up and you see that the sensitivity of this PSA test is 50%. And the specificity of, of the test is 90%. Given a positive test, what are the chances of having that disease? Now, how many people would like to... How many people feel they can, uh, just stop me a minute, how many people feel they can really answer that question? One, two, okay, good, two. All right, we won't do it then, stop, stop, okay, relax. If only two people, we'll move on. But generally what happens is, people generally answer about 50%. A high proportion of you will, will answer maybe. Some of you will answer never, and some of you will answer always. It's quite difficult, isn't it, to do that? very difficult to think through something about a strategy about how you look at this problem. 
But that's the information we're asking you to look at. If you look in your books, it's going to tell you the sensitivity of this test is this, and the specificity is this. And no wonder everybody finds it difficult. So don't be worried, because when you do do this, uh, the answer is 13%, and I'll show you. Doctors with an average of 14 years' experience, answers range from 1% to 99%, half of them estimating the probability is 50%. It's about a 1% chance of a clinical person getting it right, okay? All right. Did you see that? I, I'll say that. I want to run a few tests on you just to cover my ass. That's the main reason people test. They don't understand. I'm going to walk you through this, and if you want, you can ignore me now, or you can look. I have these sheets for you to take back. Just to, You can use these as filling sheets to work through the thinking if you want to look at diagnosis. But I'm going to show you how I think. Okay. The first thing is, what do I use a 2x2 two two table for? I don't use it for the calculations, I use it for thinking. I think, my brain is here, imagine if this is my brain, okay? On the top is always disease, okay? On the side is always test. I never move them around. Somebody today in our group wanted to move them around in terms of how we look at tables, and I was like, don't do that to me, I've been having it this way around for 14 years. They wanted to put the disease on the side, you're going to kill me. So this is an important thing in, in your teaching zone. Whichever way you teach something, keep it the same amongst the, all of you. If you start to do things different ways, you'll confuse everybody. If we teach different ways in this group, one group will start to talk to the other group and get confused. But what I use this box for is actually for the definition. Okay? I draw a line down and I think to myself, disease going down is sensitivity. So when I talk about sensitivity, I'm talking about the proportion of people with the disease, and I'm thinking about how many of them test positive. Do you see that? However, with the difficult thing about what I ask you, is I ask you about what's called the positive predictive value. What happens if you have a positive test, and you're all lost? But what I do is to remember the definition of sensitivity, I throw that, and I just said, I gave to you, if you've got the disease, and you test positive. That's sensitivity. So the first piece of information is to use that sensitivity. Now my group will know this because we spend about two hours on what I call natural frequencies. I think in terms of treatment effects, in terms of diagnosis, in terms of a hundred people. Nothing else, apart from sometimes in a thousand. But I think of, in the first bit of information I gave you, there was a prevalence of 3% in every hundred patients. And I split that into, actually, what does that mean in terms of 100 patients? Three people had the disease, 97 did not. Okay? Everybody see that? Happy with that? Anybody not see that? Okay. Then I gave you a piece of information. I said the sensitivity was 50%. Which group of these people have the disease? The top bit. How many of them top people will test positive? One and a half. You see that? I'll go back. Three people had the disease. Sensitivity 50%. Remember, I'm going down the column. People who have the disease, the proportion who test positive was 50%. That's one and a half people. Now, in effect, I could stop there because that's probably more information than anybody ever needs. Because now you can realise if you have a positive test, some people still will be left behind with the disease. 
and some people will. But the important feeling is to get a feeling of how these tests work in terms of, of the prevalence of the disease. Okay, we've still got these 97 people without the disease. Okay, now this is the real trick. We've actually set back diagnostic thinking in probabilistic reasoning many years by giving people the specificity with the sensitivity. Because the specificity, if you want, you can think of the arrow, and I haven't got the arrow, sorry, is going up. It's a proportion of people without the disease who test negative. But what I'm interested in is this box. You see that? Because I want it to go across. Now this is, and, and I can't undo this, we, it seems to be we've got this very difficult thinking that because we've got these two boxes here, we can't mentally adjust and come up with a figure for that predictive value. And something's gone wrong in our wiring, it's too difficult for us to understand. However, what I do is I use what's called the false positive rate. And if I go back, what I do is I do 1 minus the specificity immediately in my mind or 100% minus the 90%. I gave you a specificity of 90%. You see that? And so I'm interested in the false positive rate. I'm interested in this box. The people who test positive but don't have the disease. That is not the specificity. Do you see that? I'll repeat that. The people who test positive but do not have the disease. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in a positive result. Now when that comes out, that was 10% of 97. That's pretty easy math for me to do, that's about 10 people. I, do, I don't want to be exactly, 9.7 is meaningless. Okay? But what I've done is I've assembled all the people who have a positive test now. And of them 11 and a half, only one and a half, one and a half will have the disease. That was the 13% chance. Hmm? Can you repeat this point again? Well, all these patients now on this right-hand side are the people who've tested positive. But it's important to recognise that the majority of people who tested positive are these who didn't have the disease. That's the 1 minus the specificity. And if in terms of positive tests, the specificity is of no benefit to you. The smart people here will start to realise I'm using what's called the likelihood ratio, but I won't go there. But what I will do is that's how I describe the result to my patient, back in the natural frequency of 100. Those of you who want to have a go at this in your group, I have these little handout sheets where you can just fill the boxes in. But I'll show you what it feels like. Here's how you do it quick. You can do this, and I can do this quick in my mind now, but the most important bit is being in the ballpark. I'm not at, I don't care if you get 15% or 10%. What worries me is if the first group, people would have got an answer like 70% or always. I start to worry. I've changed the prevalence of the disease to 30% and the same test. You see that? Same test, prevalence is 30%. This is like going from... A GP setting with a probability of 3% to now in hospital. The prevalence has gone up or the pretest probably has gone up. It, now, I, let's, I'll bring this up in a second. In terms of 100 patients, how many people have the disease? 30. 30. 
Okay? But, yeah. Happy with that? How many do not have the disease? 70. 70. Okay. Sensitivity of 50%. 15. 15. Okay? Forget the specificity. You want the 100% minus the 90, which is 10%, don't you? The false positive rate. You're interested in the proportion of people who don't have the disease who test positive. How many people is that? 10%. 7. 7. Seven. Seven. Okay. Now I've just assembled you very quickly all the people who have a positive test. 22 positive tests in a total of which 15 have the disease. The chances of you now having the disease are 70% have gone from 13 to 70%. That's much more informative in terms of disease, in terms of thinking, in terms of what you're going to do next. You didn't have to get it right, but you did have to be able to think mentally that you can get in the ballpark of where you're going. I'm pleased that some of you got there, and if you want to go back to your groups when you look at this piece in your, some of you might not do diagnostics from here on, that's fine. It's quite challenging. I find it a lot of fun. I think we have to think about how we change how we view things. However, I'm going to finish now, but the important thing is to recognise, I like this paper, this was a Dutch paper. When they looked at children with serious, serious infection, very low rate, about one, less than 1% 1 of children had serious infection, from all like my daughter, remember I told you at the beginning about this unwell high temperature, less than 4, accuracy of signs and symptoms was fairly low, the sign paramount in all trees was the physician's statement, something is wrong. Just like we sat there going, I think there's something wrong. So probabilistic reason is only one part of a strategy. We've put this together, and I haven't given you the whole bit, but here's all the strategies. And the people who've been involved at the top there are people, some people who like Paul and Dan and Raphael, and we've been collecting patients. And this is going to be in the BMJ, which we're very pleased about. We've actually got this to a point where we're going to start explaining this in a whole series of articles. So watch out, it's about four or six weeks away from going into the BMJ, and then we're going to take each one and say, once we've described this, we're going to take the spot diagnosis and then illustrate it more. So once that's come out, I'll put this talk up. I can't put this talk up until that's come out. But that'll be about six weeks ago. Okay. And I particularly like this. I'm going to finish on this guy, Jeff Norman. Jeff Norman's a very world-eminent person on education and diagnostic reason and been looking at it for many years. Diagnosis is not a matter of acquiring some kind of all-inclusive reasoning strategy. To some extent, several strategies may lead to the same diagnosis. The recognition of the strategy should encourage the use of experience to guide our search for the correct diagnosis. So there are more ways of skinning the cat. And I hope that sort of makes you feel that some of the bits you can be comfortable with and say, maybe I'll just improve the way we do spot diagnosis. Maybe I'll look at prediction rules. Maybe I'll forget the probabilistic reasoning. And at that, I'll stop. Thank you.